Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I saw the uh, hand of Alderman Hopkins raise. Alderman oh, Hopkins. I had my hand up before. I called for a roll call first. Alderman Hopkins has had his hand up. Oh, come on. How rude. <laughs> you, you know, I can't hear that enough. That, of course, is an uh, excerpt from a city council meeting from a week ago. We broke it down with uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosie yesterday. We broke it down with David Glowitz. And I still cannot hear it enough, Dennis. That's Lori Lightfoot burying the attempt to, to rename the outer drive for uh, DuSable by calling on Brian Hopkins, uh, who is going to defer and publish, even though Sophia King had her hand up first. They are, these mayors can be pretty petty. We, Monroe Anderson will be a guest coming on in a little while. I'm going to ask him if Eugene Sawyer would try a fast one like that. So she, she's like, Sophia King had her hand in the air. I don't see it. I don't, I don't see it. Sorry, Dennis. I just can't stop. I can't help myself. That's what we like. That's what we like here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. So that's fine. That's fine. Uh, your Ben Jarofsky Show for Wednesday, June 16th is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Become a bin head. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A V as in victory. S-K-Y for more information. Wednesday, June 16th, and live from my apartment and his attic and Monroe's living room. Oh. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Media law. Oh, a lot. Okay. Media law. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and the return of Troy LaRavier. And now your host. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this easy like Sunday morning, Wednesday. And here's why. Easy is stepping down. Repeat. Easy is stepping down. The easy in that sentence is, of course, Eric Zorn, the outstanding columnist for the Chicago Tribune, who's known by the name Easy because his initials are Easy. In fact, I think I'm... When I think about a D, the only one who calls him EZ, but whatever. He's known that way. And he signs his emails, EZ. So we call him EZ. Much like D is known as D because his first initial is D. In fact, little known fact about Eric Zorn, for years he was known as Dr. EZ. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not a doctor. Monroe Anderson, by the way, is known as Money Man Monroe. Back in Gary, that's what they call the Money Man. Get him the ball. <laughs> Uh, anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. For many years, Eric Zorn was the answer to the following trivia question. Who's the only non-batshit crazy <laughs> columnist writing about politics for the Tribune? Monroe's cracking up. Eric Zorn. Eh, we got to give some love to Clarence Page. He wasn't batshit crazy. But most of those columnists for the 80s and the 90s and the O's, are so right-wing, they fall off the planet. 
Yes, as you can see, I've had a love-hate relationship with the Chicago Tribune for many, many years. Because somehow or other, they would allow lunatics whose worldview bears no relation to what most people in Chicago think have a page to opine their right-wing lunacy. And I always thought, what an intriguing business proposition. Let's try to stay in business by opining opinions that the overwhelming majority of the people who live in the general area find revolting. And then some defender of the Tribune would say to me, Ben, you know, the audience is greater than Chicago. You ever notice how people always have an answer for everything? It's like last night in the Stephen Colbert show, or maybe it was the night before. John Stewart was hilarious. He came on and said it's pretty obvious to him that the coronavirus was created in a lab in Wuhan, China, because the virus has the same exact name as the lab. Hello. The name of the lab is the name of the virus. And Stephen Colbert is like, but John, there's a lot of bats in Wuhan. You know, everybody has an answer for everything. Anyway, back to Eric. Eric Zorn is steady as a rock. He was always there at the Tribune, more often than not, carefully and studiously and fairly studying an issue from top to bottom to arrive at some dispassionate truth, as opposed to me. I'm a little more like John Stewart. Hello! The name of the lab is the exact same name as the disease. Got to tell you, I was so disappointed when I heard the news. And how did I hear the news? Charlie Meyerson, a little shout out to Charlie from Public Square. Uh, had a link to Robert Feeder's blog, which had the scoop. Robert Feeder has all the scoops. Feeder had the scoop when I got hired at WCU later, and then he had the scoop when I got fired at WCU later. In fact, I think Feeder knew I was fired before I did. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> There's a good chance that's true. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I've, I'm not sure I've ever met Rob Feeder, but somehow I think he, he knows more about me than I know about me. Anyway, there was a link to Eric's farewell, which was uh, from a newsletter he writes for the Trib, and I'll read a portion of it. Quote, the Tribune has been dangling buyout offers to those of us in the newsroom for at least 14 years, and each time I've declined, saying I love my job too much to give it up in exchange for what amounts to a long-paid vacation. My standard line was that I'll take the chance that the bosses won't lay me off in a cost-cutting move, and if that ship goes down, I'm planning to go down with it, end of quote. But, and this is one of those moments where you can see the butt coming from a mile away, but, quote, I've decided to put in for the latest buyout offer, one that will have me leaving at the end of the next week. My sense is that I'm not in the long-term plans of our new owners and that I should see the offer not as a shove out the door, but as a launching pad for new adventures, new projects, and new beginnings of all sorts. I will miss the rat-a-tat-tat pace of newspaper punditry and having an outlet for my passions, whims, crotchets, and conceits. Some of them, in retrospect, I should have kept in the drafts folder, but it's a high-wire act, and sometimes you fall off, end of quote. I'm getting a little choked up just reading it, D. Nothing lasts forever, but reading Eric Zorn in the Tribune is one of the things I've been doing for so long that I thought it would last forever. At least I never thought that it would end. I know, I know, I know, we all move on. But this new bunch that owns the Tribune, how can I say it? They're even more despicable than the old right-wingers who ran the bunch. All they want to do is squeeze that paper of every nickel by getting rid of the great talent so they don't have to pay salaries while getting suckers like me to keep up with my subscriptions. The less salaries they pay, the more suckers' subscriptions they have. Gregory Pratt, Tribune's A-City Hall reporter warned us about this, and here we are. 
Anyway, Eric, I know you're going to land on your feet doing whatever it is you want to do because you're a mentally talented writer with a big heart. And the door, as you know, Eric, is always open at the Ben Jarofsky Show for you to stop by and be a guest pretty much any time you want. And speaking of guests, we've got a great show today, everybody. Monroe Anderson, the man they call money, back in Gary, Indiana. He knows a thing or two about the Despicable Tribune. That's for sure. Uh, he's got all the latest Trump news and Putin news, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and then Troy Laravier. One of our dear friends, president of the Chicago Principals Association, will be on after Monroe. He's fired up, ready to talk about all kinds of local issues. Whoops, almost knocked my water over. National issues and so forth. Uh, so uh, that's our show for today. Without further ado, we're going to bring on the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Gary, Indiana. Uh, Monroe Anderson, who's sitting back in that easy chair, having just done his Tai Chi, looking very rested and ready to rock and roll. Welcome back, Monroe. It's good to be back. Wait, Monroe, did they call you money? Wasn't that your nickname? In college. College. I knew it. I knew you had a nickname, money. Yeah. yeah. Was yeah. it a poker thing or something? Oh, no. Monroe. <laughs> yeah. Money. It's the first three Ron letters there. Roddy. Ron Roddy. Dan Daddy. Get it? <laughs> Some things you got to break down for Ben, okay? <laughs> so you just sort of break it down oh yeah I just thought you were like a poker player Money Monroe no, no, I was a poker player but I wasn't very good really yeah, I gave it up you play, a, a tangent within a tangent but do you play cards oh yeah I play cards but Fair. yeah yeah, and I played poker in fact I, I, I got um, social probation in my freshman year because I got caught with some other guys in the door playing penny poker. <laughs> Social promoter, you're lucky they didn't throw you out. Get back to Gary. <laughs> exactly. All right, Monroe, uh, we got a lot to talk about, but uh, I know you have some general thoughts about the Tribune. Uh, you work for the Tribune. You were, you were like the – I can't believe you even got a job at the Tribune, Monroe, as just like – an outspoken black man working at the Tribune, man. They're just like, they were probably trying to fire you from the moment, the moment you got there. Um, it got worse as it would have lost. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, so, you know, the thing is, when I, I was there for 10 years, mm -hmm. a little longer than 10 years. That long? And yeah, oh. yeah. And, um, and I left there and went to Newsweek. And so they gave me my pension. The Tribune did. It was a thousand and some dollars flat. That was it. And the reason they said that it was so little is because the life expectancy, whatever the insurance company said, calls that stuff, is that um, a black man lives to be 62. So they, they actually said that to you? That. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's unbelievable. They get they wrote you a check for a thousand dollars just flat out of something. Yeah, I, I don't remember the amount. That's not even a pension. That's just like oh, I know. Beat it. I know. I know. You know, but I was I was I was on to something else, and I was um, in my I was, I was twenty some years away from retirement at that time, and so I just shrugged it off. Said that's the tribute. Yeah. I don't know how you worked there at all. I, um, I, I've told this story so many times. When I first met Monroe, he came to the uh, the reporter 
By the way, I urge everybody to check out my interview with Kevin Blackstone, two old reporter alums talking about the need to preserve the reporter. We dropped this weekend, but uh, and Kevin was in the room. He was one of the reporters sitting around the table. Uh, he's now a big time sports writer for the uh, Washington Post. But we were sitting around the room listening to Monroe Pine and 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 Monroe. I I've always had this conversation both on the air and off the air many times. I have struggled with the Tribune all these years. It's such a powerful, important force in the city of Chicago. You need a newspaper to be a check and a balance on the people who run the city. And yet, more often than not, the Tribune, if you look back historically, has just been it's this outrageous voice of the right. I think about their coverage of the Black Panther killings. It's just, I still haven't got, Monroe, it happened in 1969, and I still haven't got over it. Yeah, I know. We were Bob Weedrick uh, pointed to the nail holes and said those were bullet holes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and well, you know, there, was a, there was one theory I heard uh, mm-hmm. about why the Tribune was so favorable to City Hall and politicians. And the theory was taxes. How so? Taxes on the Tribune Tower. Oh, like at lower property taxes yeah. because they yeah. uh, because they were nice. Well, that that is the oldest story in the city of Chicago. Monroe knows this as well as I do. Those old Republican, what do they call power lords or whatever overlords that that uh, are so powerful in corporate Chicago that despise democratic programs always cut deals with powerful Chicago democratic mayors, the bosses like both dailies. And now it seems like they're closing up to Lori Lightfoot as well. Uh, they didn't quite know what to make of uh, Harold Washington. They just like didn't trust him at all. Uh, and they would look the other way at the democratic, you know, connections of the mayor, because as you're saying, there was probably some kind of understanding in the, and lower taxes, you know, you know what I'm saying? A, a lower assessment on their property, maybe a handout, a city contract here and there. Somehow or other didn't matter the democratic proclivities of the mayor. Right, Monroe? Right. Well, and, and, you know, well, you know, the one Tribune reporter that got cut down by the mob uh, in the 20s. Yeah. I think his name was Jake something. I can't. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, the Tribune had all sorts of connections. Yeah, the Tribune had all sorts of connections. And that was before my time. Even I was not born in the 1920s. All right. Uh, so uh, I know you're joining me and uh, wishing the best uh, to Eric Zorn as he oh, yeah, no, Eric's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Eric's one of the good guys. All right. Let's move on and discuss the news of the day. Breaking news uh, from Putin and Biden. They met. Uh, and you're our correspondent covering Putin. It's a tough job, but someone has to do it. <laughs> Every Chicago podcast needs a Putin correspondent. Uh, so what happened? I've been busy. Uh, well, they met. Mm-hmm. Putin had his press conference first. And it was a master class in whataboutisms and uh, false equivalency. Uh now, you know, you know, uh, all those conversations Putin and Trump had uh, where no one was in the room when it happened. Well, now I know what happened. Putin was giving Trump lessons in what about and false equivalences. For example, did you know that not for example, this is one of Putin's things he did in the press conference. Um, 
the reason that um, Natalvi, who was in prison, he, who he poisoned and uh, his main competitor, uh, the reason he's in prison is because he broke the law, Russian law. And that's why he's in prison. He knew better, but he insisted on doing it. And um, government must do what government does. That's why during January 6th, um, the U.S. had to shoot the woman and kill her for trying to come in the building. And uh, the, the reason he has to keep order in Russia, because otherwise it would end up like in America with Black Lives Matter. And and did Putin actually uh, opine this? Did he actually stay that, say this uh, to Biden in their meeting? I don't know. He, he oh, said yeah. it. Biden didn't say he said it in their meeting, but he said it to the media. Yeah. During the press conference. Yeah. They. Uh, in other words, uh, Russia would be as disorderly as the United States. So we're yes. uh, uh, right. And so you so so you know sometimes you got to kill somebody. <laughs> As for all those murders that happen, well, murders happen in the U.S. all the time. Yeah. They're killing everybody. We're killing everybody here um, every day with the shootings. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, what about the murders in your, your country? You know, yeah, sure, people who oppose me end up dead some kind of way. I have nothing to do with it, but it happens. Just like people in your country get shot down on the streets. <laughs> uh, so the uh, the excerpt that I saw uh, by uh, Putin just absolutely denied that he had anything to do with meddling in the United States election uh, or cyber attacks on uh, the U.S. It was a damnable lie. That's, I don't think that was his literal uh, words, but it amounts uh, to what he was. Yeah, no, no like, saying. well, I want to say like Trump, but actually is Trump like Putin took no responsibility whatsoever for the, any of this that's happening. Nothing. This, the, uh, the cyber attacks, I mean, none of that stuff that's going on. Do you believe him? <laughs> right. Do I believe him? <laughs> <laughs> you believe he's anything that comes out of higher than Trump. You yeah. Know, he, 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 he sort of slips and slides between uh, smugism and uh, surprise, like how you know why would you talking about? That you're hurting my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think there's going to be much substantive difference between the way Joe Biden uh, deals with Putin and the way Donald Trump does? Other than, I, I presume that Joe Biden will not have like hidden inside deals with various uh, Russian oligarchs. Uh, well, like okay, no, let, let, let's be real about this. Trump has gone from being Putin's puppet to being Putin's pal. <laughs> so they still have an affinity, and et cetera. Um, Biden doesn't like Putin at all. He, if you'll recall, he said he, he was a killer. And that at one point he looked into uh, his eyes, and he didn't see a soul. <laughs> and Putin denies that um, he responded, uh, um, he, he knows me, if I knows me. He, he, doesn't rem- he doesn't deny it, he doesn't remember. Mm. Uh, 
But no, Biden is walking this tightrope mm-hmm. where he wants to chill things out a little bit. So they have more of a working relationship and Putin quits all the madness that he's been doing, uh, putting, um, um, attacking our, our people, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, unlike Trump, he's, he's, he's stern and he says, mess with us and it's going to cost you. Mm. Yeah. I, and I also, I don't think there's any uh, possibility uh, that some like backroom deals between uh, Biden and uh, Putin. Uh, no, no matter, no, no, no matter what. No. Uh, all right. Uh, and so that's a perfect transition because Putin's, denying that the Soviets had any, uh, there were Soviets, boy, am I locked in the old days. The Russians uh, had any, played any role in cyber attacks in the United States or had played any role uh, in trying to uh, turn the election in favor of Donald Trump, even though that's even more preposterous uh, than the, um, what John Stewart was talking about uh, on the Stephen Colbert show. Uh, yeah. Although he, you know, during the press conference, he, he, got sort of close to um, insinuating that he may have had something to do with the, uh, the elections. And that he, he talked about how America had uh, tried to uh, meddle in his election and tried to get him un- unelected. And so basically what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But, you know, but he said it slickly enough where, it would be difficult to pin him down yeah. to an actual mission. By the way, the reality is this, and you know this as well as I do, Monroe, that the uh, the, the CIA has been involved in so many elections covertly. Right. right. And so the United States, Donald Trump every now and then would stumble on something that was truthful. Yeah. And, and he would say, you know, the U.S.'s hands aren't completely clean either. And he was saying this to sort of divert attention away from whatever Putin had done to abet him, to help Donald Trump yeah, get elected. You probably fed him the lie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not joking about that. <laughs> he probably... <laughs> When they were having their secret talks, had <laughs> Trump sitting on his knee, and he was explaining to him how the real world works outside of the crooked moneymaker world, but the rest of it. That is so true. <laughs> Here's what you say, Donald, okay? <laughs> oh, my goodness, that's funny, but it's probably true. Uh, but it, it definitely is true for years and years yeah, because, and years. No, because now stop and think about it. Whenever Trump would make these uh, pronouncements, yeah. he didn't back it up with episode or statistics or anything. He just said it. We kill people. Uh, so what if Putin's a killer? America kills people, too. Yeah, you would just, you know, which, and it's true. America kills people. Yeah, America has overthrown government. Yeah, like he couldn't say, for example, uh, that in the fifties, uh, America overthrew a South American country, and that's why people are coming to the border is because we destroyed their democracy. <laughs> he couldn't say that because he didn't know it. 
Yeah. And Putin just gave him lines that he could remember. You the know? general lines. Yeah, right. Uh, the specifics yeah. he could not fill in. Right. Uh, uh, although he probably would support the overthrow. Oh, yeah. No, right. Exactly. No. Yeah. So that's, I got to tell you, Monroe, as an old lefty, it was difficult for me. How do I put this? To act as shocked and as outraged by Putin's interference in our government as I was supposed to. You know what I mean? As as a Democrat whose candidate lost, I was supporting Hillary Clinton uh, in part because of the interference of Putin. We all know it happened. I mean, my my lefty friends will still deny it. I argue with them all the time. Uh, And of course, MAGA refuses to acknowledge. We all know the Russians hacked into the emails of uh, Hillary Clinton and her uh, operatives at the very precise time the Democrats were convening for their convention in 2016. They're supposed to come together. And then those emails were disseminated and embarrassed the Democrats, made them look bad. The Bernie supporters were got even angrier at the Hillary supporters than they already were. And that helped the Republicans. Well, Duh. Right. And the emails hit uh Hours after the um, Trump um, bragging about um, filling women up. Oh, no, those are the second emails. Yes. I'm talking about the, you're correct. Uh, Yeah. uh, Grabbing women by the pussy. Yeah. That was, that was, that was the second uh, batch of, so it's, it's just like Americans are in such denial from both parties because like lefties want to believe that Hillary is abhorrent and centers are abhorrent. So they don't want to look at what uh, the interference that Putin may have had. And MAGA wants to believe in their own righteousness. And so they look the other way, even though we all know this stuff goes on all the freaking time. You know what I'm saying, Monroe? Well, okay. This is a nice segue. And that's, that's how all this information is coming out on how Trump, tried to steal the election every which way. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, the, it, it becomes pretty soon it's going to be like a, a, um, a, a, a freeway with X's and entrances signs all the way to all the way. We just follow it. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And, but so what, that's what I was going to lead to. is that I think what Trump did in this last go around was perhaps what more damaging to our democracy than what Putin did in 2016 by having his hackers uh, invade the democratic computers and release all the nasty, mean, underhanded things that Hillary's people were saying about Bernie. I think, you know, I, I think, I, I think it's the equivalence equivalent of, um, Bin Laden and the World Trade Center towers. He 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 bombed. He had the he bombed. He had the planes fly into the the towers to make a point about uh, America and to have a terrorist act. But he didn't actually believe that he would take the towers down. That was not you know that was that was a bonus that the tower the towers actually collapsed. And what. Putin has done with Trump has been way more successful. You know, he he didn't even he he didn't think that he would get Trump elected. 
He just wanted to make Hillary's life miserable mm-hmm. and to have people doubt her. But then, wow, he gets a <laughs> puppet yeah. in there. And he successfully divides America to where it's, it's, it's in worse shape than it's been in, in generations. No, the divisions which always existed are so yeah. out in the open and just so unavoidable. You're absolutely correct that uh, it's probably a bonuses and benefits that Putin didn't even envision. Right. Uh, and, um, and so that's a pretty, pretty good analogy, but what's happening right now, as I was, I was going to say that the Republicans, it, with the voter suppression laws that they're passing with the harassment of a friend of the show, Beth sent me a, a, an email of an article that I had somehow missed Monroe that talked about all the violence, the threats being uh, delivered at election workers throughout the country right. by right. MAGA people. Right. Uh, and so the election workers are in fear of their life. They're stepping down. Uh, the laws are being passed that give oversight of election boards to Republican lackeys. And they're setting up for to steal, to do right. what Trump wanted to do and couldn't do in 2020. They're setting right. up to steal it. And Putin couldn't do any of this. This is far more, right. more dangerous right. than anything Putin could do. Although the Republicans really are quoting him. It's talking points in many instances. And now he's, he's, he's embraced their talking points. He's, he, he's, he's speaking of the January 6th insurrection, the way MAGA speaks of it. And it's there in the press conference, he made a reference to how um, basically they were innocent bunch of people and just visiting the White House, I mean, the Capitol or something. You know, it is, it, 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 it's not an insurrection, according to him. It wasn't an insurrection. Wow, I missed, see, I, again, I missed the press conference, but I, I, I'm, I'm astounded that he would even weigh in. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it's... No, he uses, that's one of his um, wow. false equivalencies. He uses... Well, uh, it was very government gone wild instead of Republicans gone wild, which is really what's happened. You know, they also uh, don't want uh, America's racial history taught in the school. And so they're they're coming up with laws to prevent that. uh, Uh, That, by the way, is a topic uh, that I've uh, already uh, set up to talk about with Troy LaRavier, who'll be coming on soon. Uh, I sent him an article on that subject. But since you raised it, I might as well discuss it with you, Monroe. Yes, it started off with uh, objections to the 1619 Project, uh, which the New York Times had put together. Then it became like a more general uh, opposition to critical race, race theory. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then discussing systemic racism, the concept of systemic racism. And now Monroe, the laws are written in such a way that teachers are wondering, can we even teach critically of Jim Crow? Are we yeah. supposed to somehow just ignore Jim Crow or yeah, pretend like one, I, I, I forget which one, but there's a school district that uh, just passed the law, uh, or city council or something. But anyway, they passed a law where you can't talk about um, one race or another being the the founders of the country. 
Yeah. You're not even supposed to do that. Yeah. Now, you know, the reality is you don't have to talk about it because you know it was white men. And if you didn't know it, the pictures you see are white men. Yeah. And the words you read are white men. So you don't have to actually say it. But yeah. but that's, again, one of their, I mean, the Republicans really have gone insane. I think we need to put them out of their misery. Yeah. Uh, I got a text. I'm not calling for any violence. Without, yeah, no, you're talking about um, political misery. Uh, I got a text from Troy LaRavier. Uh, he uh, is waiting for his link to be sent to him, and he'll be coming on the show uh, really soon uh, to talk about some of these issues. And uh, Monroe, I got to ask you about the Justice Department under uh, Trump. This really requires a longer show. Maybe bring back you yeah. and Jim Coogan to take the deep dive in this. Uh, but, um, Man, those first two years, it looks like those first two years of Trump's presidency, they were, they, they were having the, the Justice Department investigate reporters, congressmen, uh, White House staffers. He had an enemies list. And unlike Nixon, he had his Justice Department act on it. Oh, and I know he, what you're saying. He, yeah, unlike and, Nixon, he didn't yeah. just have an enemies list. Right, exactly. He had his Justice Department act on exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. He had he had him act on it. Well, not uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm defending Trump. I will say this: and <laughs> Nixon okay. had bring it on. <laughs> no, I'm not in any way. Def- I'm just. I just got to clarify this as a guy who's obsessed with Richard Nixon and uh, Watergate, etc. He had Plummer. He had his henchmen like breaking into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg to try to dig up dirt on Ellsberg. So they were actually, I mean, it was more like his henchmen and then the justice department, let's think about the Chicago seven trial or Chicago eight trial. So he did use, that was a pretty sleazy. They cooked up some conspiracy theory against a bunch of hippie lefties and black Panthers. Oh my God. And then the war against the black Panthers that was engineered. So they're by the FBI, the justice. So Nixon, they weren't exactly, this is my thing. It's like, there has been a trend in right wing America, uh, to use the power they have in this government. So obvious what I'm about to say to stifle free expression from lefties like you and me, Monroe for, Oh My yeah, hey, but but Trump took it to a new level. He, he, it's on steroids with him. I mean, he he forced Apple to give up information on his enemies. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, uh, they were they were getting phone records. I mean, not only his enemies, but people we thought may have been his enemies, like McGahn. Mm. <laughs> Who was his? Uh, it is it, for the White House attorney. Yeah, you know, yeah. they were. I mean, they were just. They were going incredible. They were just doing everything that you're not supposed to do, and and if 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 he doesn't go to he doesn't go to jail for this, I'm gonna be broken hearted. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh... We'll close like we always do with you, with your prediction about will uh, Donald Trump end up in uh, prison? Uh, you've been pretty consistent on this one, saying uh, that he will. Um, do you think it'll be for crimes of property or you know dealing with his business, or do you think it'll be crimes of the state? 
It could be both. But if I, if I had to do one or the other, I, I think it could be both. But if I had to do one or the other, it's going to be the business crimes. Yeah. Because they, because they have a RICO, basically a RICO uh, investigation going on with him right now. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that point, because going after Trump for crimes of the state, in other words, overreach, similar to the impeachment, would infuriate MAGA so much and the Republican Party would be united in opposition to it. I don't think the Democrats have the stomach to do that. And uh, the thing, no, it's not the stomach. It's the reality is the Republicans in power in Washington have aided and abetted Trump with this. And so they could not indict him without indicting themselves. This is why they don't want a June, a January 6th um, investigation into what went on because some of them were part of it. And it's obvious that they were part of it. And so once that can of worms gets opened, uh, it's not going to be happy days. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you know, uh, you saw this, we haven't talked about this on the air yet, but uh, there was a Chicago police officer uh, who was in the Capitol Right, uh, and they have his text that he sent from the Capitol, and um, I'm I can't remember if he's actually been indicted uh, on trespassing charges or not. Uh, the article was in the Chicago Sun Times. So I've not had an opportunity. But he, he's been fired. Yeah, he's been fired. Yeah, uh, he has been fired, or he's been, uh, yeah, or is, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm pretty sure. All right, Troy LaRavier uh, has joined us. He's connected uh, with us. So uh, I'm going to say farewell to Monroe. And we're taking a break. And when we we return, (laughs) everybody can see everybody. It's amazing. When we return, uh, we'll be talking all the issues of the day with the great Troy LaRavier. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back, bitches. And welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from his attic. Yes, uh, live from my, uh, my attic, Monroe has left. Troy LaRavier uh, is with us, although right now he's not at his desk at his screen, uh, which gives me an opportunity uh, to briefly talk about uh, basketball. This news is breaking. Uh, Dennis, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, I, I just this. We're not going to be talking <laughs> basketball with Troy LaRavier, uh, but I, I just can't I can't even articulate this thought. Uh, Chris Paul, who's one of the great basketball players in the NBA, and follow me, folks, there's a little political end to this. He's also the head of the uh, Basketball Players Association. He's been around for a long time in the NBA. He's 36 years old. He's never won a championship. And this looked like his opportunity to win a championship. And now the story is breaking that Chris Paul has got the virus uh, and he's going to be uh, he's going to be curling it out for an indefinite amount of time. It could jeopardize uh, his ability to play. And it's apparent that it looks as though he didn't get the vaccine. And I, I just, I, Troy LaRavia has joined us. uh, He's back. I just don't understand. I, and I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to be as open-minded as I could possibly be, uh, Troy. I know this is, we weren't going to talk about this, but I just throw this at you the reluctance of people and maybe i don't know for all i know you haven't gotten the vaccine i haven't even discussed this with you for all i know you're like chris paul or uh who's the anthony rizzo and the chicago cubs and people who can get the vaccine won't get the vaccine jeopardizing what their 
careers, their lives, their teams. In this case, you know, Chris Paul's going to have to sit out for all these days and miss games. And supposedly his lifelong dream is to win a championship. Probably because he wouldn't get the vaccine. Troy, please help me with this. What What is going on? What's the disconnect that I'm missing and I don't understand? Help me with this, Troy. Brother, uh, first of all, uh, good afternoon to you and your audience. What's up, D-Nice? <laughs> What's going on, man? My main man, D-Nice. Um, man, I'm not in Chris Paul's head, man. I don't know. Yeah, there are two general reasons that I understand that folks don't do it. It's either... And both of them involve misinformation, but one is myth, misinformation that creates a, a fear about what the side effects of the drug might be or what um, what it might, you know, if, if it might have worse consequences for their health if they take it than if they just get the virus and let it run its course. Um, and of course, that's based on, for the most part, misinformation. People, There are people out there who believe it. And they decide that it's in their own best interest not to get it, that they have a better chance if they don't, if they get the virus and if they get the vaccine. Um, I, of course, disagree with that um, because it's not in line with what science says. <laughs> what, and when we say what science says, we almost like we make science like a thing. Science is a process, right? It's, it's not a thing. It's not a person. It's, it's, it's not a, um, a political candidate. It's a process. It's a process of testing shit out to see what works best. And then looking at the results to see which gives you a better likelihood of a given outcome. Right. That's what, so that process has told us very clearly that it's better for us to, it's you're, you're, you're at much less risk if you get the vaccine because that vaccine was put through that process. Um, and yet people trust innuendo and rumor more than they trust that process. And that then creates that fear. But then there's this other phenomenon, which is based on the same misinformation where you just kind of get married to a community that believes some bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And your marriage to that community is stronger than your marriage to reality in terms of the impact it has on your behavior. You know, I am like when you define yourself as something, you know, they talk about this in the literature on habits. Like people are more likely to adopt a habit if they base their identity on something connected to the habit. Not saying I'm going to do X, but I am like I am fit. I am a fit, healthy person. If you define yourself like that, then you're more likely to do fit, healthy things. So if you define yourself, as a so-called conservative, as a Republican, and, and that becomes a part of the Republican canon of beliefs, then you're less likely to do shit that contradicts that identity. And Republicans, unfortunately, have made, a, made it a big part of their identity to believe in bullshit, to throw away that process of defining, determining what truth from fiction. Um, and believe whatever is politically expedient and the people who so identify, you know, if this is what I am, then I can't do X because that's not what we Republicans do. 
it's a big deal. So either fear for their own safety or the desire to not act in conflict with an identity that you've taken on. Those are the two things that I see uh, impacting people's decision not to get uh, vaccinated. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I think that was a good riff. And by the way, it's not just um, a Republican, although in terms of uh, the vaccine, it definitely is uh, Republican based. I saw these, uh, a story the other day, I think it was in Mississippi, some of the uh, the real strong MAGA states. It's less than 50% of the population has got the vaccine. Uh, has They're just not going to get it. Yeah, and, and in terms of the racial breakdown, it's more likely to be the former reason than the latter. Like you're not, you don't have all these black people identifying because some black people are not. A lot of black people are not getting the, the vaccination, right? And it's definitely not because they're identifying as Republican, right? It's more like they've been subjected to a lot of the misinformation. Uh, we've been subjected to a lot of mistreatment in this country by the medical establishment and are therefore more likely to believe uh, some of this misinformation. I mean, that's probably it's, that's probably a very simplistic way of putting it, but I want to be clear that um, when it comes to certain pockets and groups of people, the reasoning shifts uh, depending on the historical context and the current context that they exist in in this country. Absolutely. And I've had conversations uh, with folks I know, uh, black and white, who are not taking the vaccine. Uh, and um, it's there's some similarities, there's some parallels. But uh, I remember this uh, one gentleman who will remain anonymous. It was a private conversation. That, uh, anyway, a black man, he was telling me, he was explaining to me, he goes, Ben, you, it's uh, black people have different uh, systems than white people. Like your body is different. And so the vaccine will have a different reaction to a white person than to a black person. And so I got to see in real time what is happening to black people who are getting the vaccine. And try to really know what to say other than I'm like, I didn't know how to, I was like, Okay, well, when you come back to Earth, give me a call because what you're saying makes no sense. Go ahead, Troy. Initially, when I hear it, it makes no sense. There's like two ways I can process that, right? If we're talking genetics, then there's more genetic variability between white people, between different groups of white people than there is between black people and white people, right? So that's... From that perspective, from a genetic perspective, it's the stupidest, one of the stupidest fucking things you could possibly say. <laughs> um, however, yeah. um, there is a difference in environment. There's a different, I'll never forget, um, I was dating a, a doctor once, um, who, shall rename, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> she was a doctor at a county. And she went on to become a doctor at Rush, right? These doctor hospitals that are like fucking across the street from each other, damn near. And she talked about this condition that she saw at County that was highly prevalent that she never saw at Rush. It was type of cancer, right? A couple blocks away, right? And in terms of the lived experience of black people certainly has differential consequences on our health, right? And so 
genetically, we may be variant, but because of certain conditions we experience, we're more likely than white people to suffer certain ailments and diseases and cancers. And so to the extent that having been been exposed to those conditions would impact our response to a vaccine, maybe, (laughs) maybe. I don't know if that's where the brother was going with that comment, Um, but you know, I'm trying to look at all the angles and see where that might make some kind of sense. And even if, even if you look at that, like the fact that we're more prone to all of these conditions, that would seem to say we need the vaccine more because most of those conditions are conditions that will get your ass killed if you get the coronavirus. (laughs) So if you give him, even when you try to make his shit make sense, it makes even less fucking sense. No. And what am I supposed to do? I just like, okay, that's what you believe, huh? Uh, and, uh, but you know, when I look at athletes, by the way, Troy and I did not even plan to have this conversation, but this could go on for another 20 minutes. But that's typical Troy on the Ben show. We did not even, but Troy, I, I got to express this because I'm thinking about Rizzo of the Cubs, the first baseman who didn't get the vaccine. Jason Hayward of the Cubs, I'm a obsessive sports fan, so I followed it, didn't get the vaccine. They both addressed it. And now I don't know for certain that Chris Paul didn't get it, but it sure looks like he didn't get it. And let me just point this out. You know, so Anthony Rizzo is the one who came close to articulating whatever the reason was that he didn't get it, uh, as muddied as his articulation was. And he was saying that there was these unknown, I'm paraphrasing, health consequences, and they're studying uh, the results with the doctors, and they're looking at the data. He kept saying that. I'm like, what data are you looking at with your doctors that we, the people, aren't looking? You know what I'm saying? It's like right. he has inside sources. And I'm thinking, this is a man who's living, follow me in this, Troy, is to stand at the plate <laughs> and not blink when a pitcher throws a hard missile-like object at 100 miles an hour. He could be annihilated at any moment by that ball. And Chris Paul on the basketball court running full speed, stopping at a dime on 36-year-old knees, you get what I'm saying? His knees could explode, and it, he's driving up the middle. Someone could whack him over the head, give him a they, lifting weights, running, exposing their body, pushing their body to limits, and yet they won't get a vaccine. I, I'm like, you got baseball players taking steroids to be stronger. You got everybody's got tattoos. <laughs> Who knows what shit they're putting in their arms with those tattoos, and yet. For some reason, the doctors say, take this drug. It'll protect you from this virus. Nope. Not going to do I'm going to jeopardize my entire career, everything I'm working for. Troy, help me with this. This makes no sense. This is, I think, a sign that our country is insane. Go ahead. I can't add to that, man. I already gave you the two reasons why I think people do it. You just did that riff of all of the risk that people take on and will not take on the minuscule risk. And, and, you know, we have to acknowledge there is a minuscule risk that people have allergic reactions. I'll never forget when I was at Blaine, one of our parents um, got a flu shot and was paralyzed by the flu shot. 
uh, he eventually came out of the paralysis and regained all of his the use of his limb, but it scared the hell out of him, and it scared the hell out of me when I thought about my next flu shot. Yeah, yeah, like, he got paralyzed. <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta think, you know. <laughs> People die from the flu, and a hell of a lot more people die from the flu than get paralyzed by a flu shot. Um, yeah. And so I eventually went ahead, you know, said, fuck it, I'll, I'll get my flu shot. But I was I was scared. But I was somebody who came face-to-face with somebody who actually had a consequence and still looked at the data to say, well, this is very unlikely to happen to me, and it's far more likely I would die from the flu if I get it than something happened to me from yeah. the flu shot. Um, so I, I don't know what these people have been exposed to. I don't know what kind of information they're basing this stuff on. Uh, but I blame it less on them than on the culture that creates all of this misinformation and fear. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's absolutely a lot. There's it's just just people believe any old bullshit they hear and it surrounds them and. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, now let's move on from this and get to the issues that I said I was going to discuss with you. Because uh, I good, man. My, that was good. That was good. I could go another half hour on this thing uh, because when you started talking about the informa- the culture of misinformation, that was like a door opening to talk about Illuminati and stuff. Yeah. I'm going to just close that door and we're going to not go down that path and we're going to go uh, talk about the issues I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, uh, there's a couple things. Uh, one is more national. One is more local. Local school, elected school boards. Of course, uh, Troy is the uh, president of the Chicago Principals Association and the collective bargaining uh, bill. I think there's some kind of correlation here where we're at as a society with public schools that principals are trying to get the law changed so that they can form a union. Blowing my mind as I say it. Uh, but we'll hold off on that and go with the, the national. i got to get your thoughts on this. This is really on my mind. Uh, one, the I talked a little bit about it with Monroe. He raised it. The laws against teaching what uh, critical race theory, critical race, not even critical. You, yes, critical race theory. But I, what I was trying to say is like a critical history about race relations in our country. And now the Republicans are moving in state after state uh, to prohibit teachers from teaching and uh and so now teachers don't know if they can teach about Jim Crow or slavery. They're not quite sure what will be a punishable act. And at the very time, I believe, Troy, when our country needs to come face to face with the realities of its past, that door is being slammed shut. Your general thoughts on this. So I haven't gotten to read the text of an entire law. But what I have seen in common when these laws are reported on is an element where it says um, you cannot teach that any group of people by nature of their race are inherently racist or sexist, blah, blah, blah. That's actually a true statement (laughs) that it's like it's designed to cause confusion because critical race theory does not teach that any group of people by nature of their race or gender are inherently racist or sexist. It teaches that the elements of the culture that I just talked about, that condition us to be racist or sexist. So critical race theory would be fine to teach under any of these laws if that's the central tenet, because critical race theory doesn't teach that that critical element where it says 
a group of people by nature, by virtue of their race, are inherently racist or sexist. That's not what critical race theory does, but that's what all these laws prevent. And so, one, it's almost like a a subtle misinformation campaign about critical race theory, (laughs) right? Because every reporter reports it as, even though the laws don't mention critical race theory, every reporter actually reports the law as prohibiting critical race theory. And so the reporters are buying into this misinformation campaign by saying laws that prevent the teaching of and the, uh, teaching kids that people are inherently racist by nature of their race. And then they see this law and say, oh, you can't teach critical race theory. They're making the associ- this, this false association for the Republicans because that is not what critical race theory is. So my first, my first comment is that it's a misinformation campaign about critical race theory disguised as a legislative agenda. It's, it's fucking diabolically brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Like it is fucking diabolically brilliant. Republicans, man, they, they, they know how to misinform. Yeah. They are, I mean, just precise, conniving, manipulative. Oh, the, Dude, they had an award. They 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 should win the Oscars of misinformation. Yeah. Like to create a nationwide legislative agenda to stop something that isn't happening, yeah. in order to associate that something that isn't happening with something else that you don't want to see happen. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant, man. By the way, they're doing the same thing with election laws. Exactly. They're they're passing election laws to stop something that never happened, which is quote unquote the theft of the 2020 presidential election. So in order to prevent that from happening again, they're passing laws. And I'm like, it it didn't happen in the first place. Why are you passing laws? You don't need a law to correct a problem that is non-existent. Yeah, the difference, however, is the laws they're passing in regard to election will actually have an effect on behaviors, will yeah. stop people from voting. When you look at the text of these laws in terms of the text I've seen so far, they're not going to, they technically can't stop anybody from doing anything except for goal number two of this thing, which is to just scare people into yeah. thinking they can't teach some shit that the law doesn't necessarily prevent. Yeah. Because reporters keep on saying it stops. It's against critical race theory. It is it. And so if you're a teacher and you get some critical race theory, which basically talks about the elements of American history and culture that create the biases that lead to differential treatment, like all these black men getting shot down in the streets, it's just happening for a reason. Like, the minds of these cops have been impacted by something. And critical race theory talks about all of this shit that takes place in this country to influence the mind of that cop, right? Or black folks who are not getting, who are getting um, uh, bad bank loans or these exorbitant interest rates. I forgot what they call them in the height of the, uh, what was it? In the height of the, the, sh- the meltdown of the U.S. economy, they were all blaming it on this particular type of home loan. Do you remember the name of that thing? Yeah, I can't. I, I blank it, but I know exactly what you're talking right. about. And it yeah. shows that a black person making six figures was more likely to get one of those loans than a white make person making thirty thousand. Yeah. Right. And so, what happens in the mind of the loan officer at the bank when they see 
a black person yeah. that leads to that kind of decision. Critical race theory talks about that history, that culture that creates that kind of bias. And none of these laws, from what in terms of what I've read so far, in terms of how they're described, whenever they quote something from the law, it always goes to this very precise statement about this sort of uh, by virtue of their race are inherently racist. Uh, and um, none of all of the laws have that in it, but teaching about the phenomenon that leads to black men get shot down the streets, that leads to these insane uh, loan uh, numbers in terms of who gets what kinds of loan predator loans. None of that has to do with a teaching of somebody being inherently racist. It has to do with the nature of the culture and history of this country that leads to the perception of black people that leads to those decisions. Yes. But uh, uh, I think, I think it's predator loans, uh, but uh, predatory, loans. predatory loans. All right. But let's just take it out. And so let's say you're a teacher and ultimately we were, this matter would uh, fall on your desk as the principal. So you're a teacher, you're a history teacher and you're trying to teach a class that gets uh, the students to think about that connection that you just made, which is the uh, ideas and attitudes and prejudices that but put in our brains from the earliest moment that we're alive in this country about black people. Okay. Right. And shooting a black, a white cop hopping out of a car, seeing Laquan McDonald standing there and shooting him 16 times. Okay. If you as a teacher, in this current environment, try, endeavor, Troy, to show some kind of connection between the prejudices that exist in our country and the biases that exist in our country and the behavior of that police officer shooting the, the 16-year-old, you will be guilty, perhaps, in the minds of some white parents, of violating this law because you will be drawing a connection that they think says there's something inherently wrong with white people, a protest will be lodged and it will come to the desk of principal Troy LaRavier or some principal. How do you deal with that? And so I, I make it clear what the law, one, I'll make it clear what the law says, right? And I'll make it clear what the teacher's doing. And frankly, I would encourage a fucking lawsuit, like, because that's what has to happen here. Like, this shit has to go to court and it has to get struck down. Um, and if I have an opportunity to be that court case <laughs> or, or to make sure that court case happens, then I'm going to take full advantage of the opportunity to do so. Uh, what I'm not going to do is censor myself or my teachers in order to avoid that litigation. That litigation has to happen because this shit's the most, some of the most unconstitutional shit I've ever heard of. And even if it doesn't get struck, so there's two things that can happen, right? The court case can actually clarify what the law says and says, and it tells people exactly what I just said. It's okay to teach about race. It's okay to teach about the culture. This does not teach what's happening here. No one's getting taught that people are inherently racist based on their gender or sex. And so the court case can make that clear so everybody can shut the fuck up and calm down. Or it can say, hell, even the law, even if the it, they were, they, this shit was happening, like, you can't do this. This is censorship. Um, this violates the First Amendment, and then we hereby strike this entire law down. So they can either make it clear that critical race theory is fine to teach, which any court case would do, based on what I've seen so far, or they can say the word in this law 
is unconstitutional no matter what the hell the teacher, no matter if the teacher's teaching critical race theory or not, or if critical race theory is actually uh, in line with what this law is trying to prevent, it still uh, violates First Amendment. And any one of those things would be a victory as far as I'm concerned. By the way, it's total cancel culture, which is beyond ironic that the Republican Party that cries about cancel culture when someone criticizes the stupid things they say would turn around and pass a law. By the way, when in the phrase critical race theory, what is critical referred to? Um, how you look, how we look. And I'm not a, you know, I wish my guy Dave Stovall would say, I know that's like, that's his, his thing. He's a professor at UIC. But what I understand is how we look at race in a country. We want to look at it critically. We don't want to uh, accept all of the notions uh, and um, presumptions and assumptions that we have. We actually want to take a critical eye to what race is, to, to the very... To the to the assumption that race is a thing. Yeah. Like listen, like, is race a thing? The critical race theorists will tell you no, it's not a thing. It's an illusion. It's made up. Right? Let's look critically at this phenomenon of race and racism. That's what I understand it to be. Mm. And question a lot of the assumptions that we have around race. And the core assumption that needs to be questioned is does race even exist? You know, and it doesn't in terms of an, a genetic reality. It does exist in terms of how people perceive and understand the world. And it certainly has an impact, a real impact on their behavior, even though it's not a real thing. Um, so that's my understanding. Yeah. No, I said, uh, by the way, I should have that professor on the show. I'm going to do you to- will be one of do <laughs> they Stovall is hilarious. I'm going to, <laughs> and and extremely bright. Uh, he is a character. <laughs> he is a character. He would be worth getting in touch with. I, I will uh, reach out to him and try to make that happen. All right. Uh, so I sent you an article from today's New York Times, which I told you you only have to skim. Uh, but it gets at things that I've been thinking about a lot. And it has to do with the New York mayoral race. And I've asked everybody who comes on the show this question, most of whom aren't even paying attention to the New York mayor race. I'm only a political junkie, so I am paying attention to it. Uh, but it's a, um, it's a battle right now. I think the two front runners, as I understand it, are Eric Adams, who is a black man, former police officer, uh, who's running, accentuating uh, the police presence in battling crime crime goes up uh and maya uh wiley who is uh endorsed by aoc uh and essentially all the lefties uh in new york city now i'm torn because the leftist in me wants to vote for wiley because i'm just following my leftist peoples on the other hand i have this notion that a lot of my uh, friends say is utterly insane that the way to begin having a whole new outlook toward policing and the black community, crime and policing is to have a black cop as mayor who could do to this issue what Nixon did to China. And that is force the police department to rethink its most basic assumptions of how you police. People say, Ben, you're deluded. You're unrealistic. This will never happen. Vote for the lefty. I don't get to vote anyway because I don't live in New York, but symbolically vote. 
Uh, so what's your thoughts about all this, Troy? We're going to have to break that China metaphor analogy down because I see the exact opposite, right? Nixon was opposed to China. Yes. Right? Like Nixon and like, so if we follow your analogy, then we need to get someone who's opposed to police. <laughs> no, no. The analogy works this way. And uh, this, this was a Richard Nixon made his career by being the ultimate anti-communist right. who used communism as a specter to scare the hell out of people and voting Republican. Got and it. communism is a force. We must defeat it. We must annihilate it. We must never uh, pacify it. It's like battling Hitler. We have to destroy. And if he would like, he would throw people in jail in this country on the grounds that they were communists. In 1972, the most virulent, vehement, anti-communist of them all cut a deal with the most communist country of all, China. Nixon went to China, met with Mao, cut a deal. Why? Because they wanted to open up cap- capitalists. <laughs> they wanted to open up that huge market to American capitalism. So that's the metaphor. The metaphor is somebody who is anti-communism going to co- doing what no Democrat could do, make an overture to um, uh, to communist China. So the the parallel would be somebody who is police doing what no leftists could do, getting the police department to reconsider its behavior over the last a hundred years. So that's the uh, analogy. Then it, that could be possible if it were the right cop. This doesn't look like the right cop. If, you know, the right cop would be that cat out of Baltimore. I don't know, I forget his name, but who exposed the entire Baltimore police force and for the racist um, and this is his language, bunch of pussies that they were. This is a it's a white cop, and he was talking about. He was like he was he was basically looking at his fellow officers, and he was noticing a pattern amongst those who treated black people um, with abuse, and he noticed a certain fear in them. And he was just like, basically, we just need to get rid of all the pussies on the force, and we'd be okay. His language, not mine. Uh, and he was actually a finalist for the Chicago top cop job in Chicago that ultimately ultimately went to Eddie Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I had that cop, you know, he could teach his fellow officers. <laughs> like he yeah. his fellow, this one, the one who wants to keep stopping frisk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is the one, brother. Like, <laughs> I, hear your, I hear your point. Uh, if you have the right cop, absolutely. Yeah. This does not look like the right cop. Yeah. Um, although he does have some slight street cred um, from the perspective of having done some things to out or try and force his officers. And I haven't read it all of the particulars, but it's my understanding that he has done some things. But hell, Lori Lightfoot had done some things in, the, in, in her role as a um, in the police department. And look what we have now. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that. Uh, I, I always point this out that Troy was uh, get gearing up to run for mayor in 2000 in the, the 19 election. And uh, the realities of fundraising forced him to drop out. Uh, everybody knows I probably would have voted for him and supported him and everything, but whatever, what happens happens, Troy. Uh, so if you were mayor uh, LaRavier and you're facing this onslaught of carnage, that's on the front pages of the newspaper 
uh, virtually every week. Uh, what would what would be some of the things you would be doing as the mayor of the city in the midst of all this? I would not be lying about the cause of it. I would not be telling people that it's the fact that these judges are letting these people out without bond that's creating this high crime right. Even while my staff was telling me behind the scene that the shit that I was saying to the public was false, right? I try to get a, a grip on, on reality and communicate that reality. Like, what is causing crime? Right? And devote some resources to stopping that. Um, the... And those many of those resources, it has to be a shift in how we think about police. And I would and I would also be talking about a lot of the ineffectiveness of the policing tactics that we're using right now. That we're wasting a lot of money. One of the big things that's wrong with the whole uh, defund the police rhetoric is how backwards it is in terms of strategy. That I mean, think about the charter school people. They didn't come out with a defund public schools campaign. That was right. They didn't. They, didn't, they did not come out with a defund public schools campaign. Rom and all those folks who are in what's his face daily before him did not say we're going to defund public schools. The federal government they came out with a report. A nation at risk. Yeah, <laughs> schools are failing. And we have to improve our public schools. And we need um, we need new, fresh ideas. And then the idea of choice came along. And together, this villainization of the public schools uh, and uh, an unjustified villainization of public schools and this concept of choice came together to do what? Defund public schools, right? For, so, but... So, so, so on our side, we just come out, defund the cops. Like if they would have came out with defund public schools, they wouldn't have got, they wouldn't have got fucking anywhere with policy. Nowhere. They wouldn't have got public support. I mean, of course you would have your hard right folks supporting them, but their agenda wouldn't have gotten anywhere. It was guaranteed their agenda would fail right at the outset. If their agenda was to defund public schools. And it seems to me that, the folks who are behind the defund the police movement have a lot of really good ideas about what policing should and should not look like, what public safety actually should and should not look like, how you take resources and invest them. But they frame their movement in, I think, the worst possible way. Um, but when you look at the ideas behind it, you know, taking you, – you look at the so, – if we took the same perspective here, we would be talking about the failure of police. We would, we would have started with the failure of police, right? Because policing has failed in large part. When you get, what was it that one weekend? Something like 50 something shootings a few years back. It was in one weekend, I think there were something like 13 to 16 deaths and not a single clearance, not a single suspect, right? Like, that's a failure of policing. When you got that many murders and your clearance rate is less than, what, 5%, that's, 
that's a failure. And you got to highlight that failure, number one. So yes, continuous, if, I'm, if I am the mayor, I am continuously highlight, highlighting the failure of our current strategy of throwing body after body of well, another cop body and another cop body on the street, another cop body. On, the, the strategy has failed and it's a waste of money. So that has to be a part of your messaging, a consistent everyday part of what's working and what's not, what's not working. Then of course you have to start talking about what you believe would work. What's the actual cause of crime and how are we going to invest our resources as a city in the stopping this, these causes or addressing these causes. And then you do that. And then there's a natural, there becomes a natural understanding or logic that we're going to have to start investing some of this money we're spending on this failed strategy and invest them in a, a more logical, reasonable strategy. Right. But that takes effort. That takes thinking and planning. And I, I hate to say it, man, but, you know, sometimes the people on our side don't think and plan. They just say whatever the fuck comes to their head uh, without a clear understanding of how you get policy through the public. Because at the end of the fucking day, the public is going to decide this because the de- public decides on the people who are going to be put in those positions of power in electoral office. And if you're giving those people uh, in power who you don't want to remain power, um, talking points to use against you in your movement. Yeah, I hear you. I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, and it sometimes it seems as though uh, we're so isolated in our little communities yeah. that we don't care what people outside our community, as long as we win the war within our little community, a little bit, right. Follow me. Then that's, that's enough. And uh, you're right. So we just talk to each other and yeah, no, defund the police would, I've, I've brought so many people on to talk about defund the police, Troy. Uh, and some people just swear by it. This is, this is where we should be going. And then I have so many other people come on and go, I'm against it. And I, these are all Democrats. Everybody comes to my show is basically a Democrat. You know, I, I always say I start with Biden on the right and I go all the way to the left and uh, to Bernie and beyond. Uh, and I'm like, well, you know, half of your lefties, I just got to tell you this, more than half of your coalition that you need to get power does not like this uh, phraseology if nothing so you might want to reconsider it because these are the people that you're going to have to turn to to get elected. When I'm reading those articles about Eric Adams, the cop who's running in New York, he's getting a lot of support from black voters in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, the polls show that he's probably the number one candidate among black voters, whether by that. <laughs> what's the number one candidate by far. Yes. The second one is a, like 30 points behind him. Yes. So 40% and the runner up is at 11 or something. Yeah. So yes. And that's your core constituency Democrats. It definitely in a city. uh, Well, and you can't win a state without them, right? Without black voters, you're not going to win a state unless there's a strong turnout. So I, I do believe that my beloved left Troy is sometimes just so busy preaching to itself that it loses track of 
the larger objective, which is to win an election. Uh, win over win an election by winning over people, people who people who don't believe what you believe, but could believe it if you message to them properly. Yeah. And you're doing a piss poor fucking job of messaging. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to the collective bargaining bill. Uh, I've told you this before. I never thought this day would come when principals would be talking about forming a union in the city of Chicago. And yet here we are. Uh, unions are popping up in places I never thought they would ever pop up before. I just saw where did I see the AAA. Uh, AAA, which is the federation uh, that gives you insurance uh, for your cars, etc. Their workers have formed a union. Uh, the New Yorker, the staff at the New Yorker, this Upper Crust magazine in New York, their staffers uh, are forming a union. They're talking about going on strike. So here we are in Chicago. Principals are trying to form a union. You're the head of the Principals Association, which is not a union. Talk about where we are with the uh, movement to have a collective bargaining bill passed in the state of Illinois. Okay, so right now there are two labor laws in this, uh, two dominant labor laws in Illinois. One is the Labor Relations Act, one is the Education Labor Relations Act. The Labor Relations Act allows supervisors to collectively bargain. The Education Labor Relations Act does not. So, for example, probably a bad example, but the one that comes to my mind is police. Uh, If you're a sergeant, you supervise people, but you're in the union. If you're a lieutenant, you supervise people, but you're in a union. If you're a captain in the police department, you supervise people, but you are in a union, right? So cops are governed and all kinds of other professions are governed by the Illinois Labor Relations Act, which allows supervisors to collectively bargain. The Education Labor Relations Act uh, lists supervisors among those excluded from collective bargaining rights. And so the gist of our bill uh, that we submitted deletes the word supervisor from those exceptions, right? And so now it's, um, what it is now is uh, confidential employees, management and supervisors do not qualify for collective bargaining rights. We're keeping confidential employees there, we're keeping management there, but we're saying let supervisors collectively bargain. Um, That bill passed The House Labor Committee, it passed the full House uh, along party line votes. Uh, It passed the Senate Executive Committee and was uh, supposed to go up for a vote in the full Senate. And that's when the governor's office, well, CPS um, went hard and they got their allies at the Chicago Fund for Education to go hard with them. And, you know, there are people on their board who can call up the governor um, and invite them out for lunch and have conversation about this uh, about, and with all of the lies and misinformation about this bill. And we assume that that's what happened because the governor called our sponsor, Selena Villanueva, the governor's office, I should say, uh, and threatened to veto the bill. And so that's got the bill held up right now in the Senate. And so we've got the situation where J.B. Prisco, who's fashioned himself as this big pro-labor person, and he's acting like he's Tony Evers for teachers, expanding their bargaining rights. But when it comes to principals, he wants to turn into Scott Walker. <laughs> so we have to strategize uh, about how we're going to get the governor's office to reconsider. Um, they've told us we need to work out something with CPS. But CPS, there's nothing to work out. 
They wouldn't give us any specific detail to work out with them because CPS has no specific. They just don't want the bill to pass. So there's nothing to work out. But we'll meet with them uh, and figure out if there is something, even though we know there isn't because that's what we've been asked to do. Um, And figure out how we can help the governor to see the hypocrisy of the position that he's taken on labor rights for principles, particularly when every talking point that CPS has come up with has been shown to be false, and then they'll come up with another one. For example, they said that if principles are not, first they said this bill would uh, define principles as non-management. We're already non-management. A court decision in 1989 defined us as supervisors, not management. So we're already not management. Mm -hmm. Then they went on to say, if they're not management, then they won't have the ability to hire and fire people or evaluate employees. However, the current education law and our proposed law all leave the definition of supervisor intact. And that definition clearly states supervisors hire and fire people. So as supervisors, we'll still have the same powers that we've always had. It's in the state law. Uh, Our bill also clarifies the definition of management because the current definition of management in Illinois law is vague as hell. And so we rewrote the definition of management to coincide with how it's defined in other states where principals have collective bargaining rights. And in those states, management has two main functions. They create district-wide policy and they negotiate collective bargaining agreements. That's what management does. And so principals don't create district-wide policy. We don't have any say in district-wide policy and we don't have any say in the collective bargaining bills that they negotiate with our teachers. And so what we say is, If we don't, if you won't let us have a voice in district-wide policy, then you must give us the right to negotiate with the people who do. Yeah. Right? That's just fair. We have no voice in district-wide policy, so we should have the right to negotiate with the people who do create district-wide policy. Because it's certainly not us. To call us management is insane. Mm. If you were in a company and you found out about a big company policy change through Twitter, would you consider yourself part of the management of that company? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. how we find out about policy changes. Yeah. Parents send us tweets. From yeah. Yes. They find out before we do. So <laughs> we are not management. Another thing CPS is trying to uh, say is that this bill would somehow uh, impact the powers of local school councils to select their principals because we could probably create a contract that might impede that right. However, in our bill, we specifically wrote that nothing about this bill shall be construed to change or deny LSCs the powers given to them by Section 34 of the school code. It says it right there in our bill. Yeah. That LSC powers remain the same. And even though it says it right there in the bill, CPS has tried to create this fear tactic to turn LSEs against the bill, thinking that somehow it would turn them against principals. In fact, what our bill does, and this is, I guess this ties it all together. One of the other things they say, well, this is a Chicago only bill because it's only for Chicago. The rest of the state stays the same. Chicago principals get collective bargaining. Right? Well, this is Chicago only. And my response to them is only in Chicago is there an unelected school board, right? Only in Chicago does a principal have two bosses, a local school council that can fire him or her, and the CEO 
that can fire him or her. And oftentimes the CEO is telling them to do shit that the local school council doesn't want. Right. And so is there any other place in Illinois where a principal has to deal with two different parties with uh, oppositional viewpoints that can both fire them? And so we're saying, OK, give us collective bargaining rights so that we uh, so that we can at least deal with the district and get some protection from the district so that we can actually side with our local school council without fearing repercussions from our district. And so this bill would actually strengthen local school councils by freeing their principals up to be a little more supportive of what local school councils want when district officials who can also fire them want something different. And so the bill just makes sense. And I haven't haven't even gotten into all of the abuse and harassment that principals have had to endure um, under this particular district. There's an official right now who's under investigation from the OIG for having harassed and abused principals for more than a decade who sat silent because they were afraid of what was going to happen to them if they spoke out. Mm. Well, they want to see what happened if they spoke out. Just look what happened to Troy LaRavier at Blaine Elementary. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was there today. The Janice Jackson came before. She, was, uh, she wasn't the head then. I always say this when Troy's on the show. It seems like it. Uh, and they, they kicked him out of the school for speaking up. And there and then, I could see a reason for uh, principals to collectively uh, have a collective bargaining agreement because uh, otherwise you're just at the mercy of these powerful political forces. You talk about getting politics out of the schools. They're already in the schools. Uh, All right. So uh, I can just imagine what uh, the, um, the, the opponents of this bill are saying. And Troy, I have to tell you, you would you that riff you went on rang true with me because I remember my own collective bargaining negotiations uh, at with the reader when we were the old days when we were owned by the Sun Times, and they were always trying to kick people out of the bargaining unit that they said were managerial. It was like a big, and so there were like these definitions of what is a manager and what responsibilities does a manager have, and their tactic was to limit was to split the staff by putting in it like non-union and union. Okay. So take editors out uh, and also reduce the number of people that they have to deal with collective bargaining uh, under collective bargaining laws. Cause you have more authority. So it's just the same damn thing that you're facing. And my question to you is uh, who are the forces that are opposing you on this? Is it the mayor's office opposing you on this? Is um, the, uh, go ahead. The mayor's office has to be behind it all. She hasn't said anything publicly and probably will try to not say anything publicly. But, you know, they take direction from the mayor's office. Uh, much of their policy is created through these this private fund for edu- Chicago fund for education. You know, the Ken Griffiths, the Bruce Rawners of the world, they fund that stuff. Um, and the fund for education came out full force against it to testify against it with one lie after another, after another. Um, And another interesting thing in relationship to Pritzker's Pritzker's opposition is that we have to remember that the Chicago Teachers Union and Chicago teachers in general are majority white. Chicago's principals are majority black and Hispanic, right? And so you have a governor who has championed the expansion of bargaining rights for a majority white teaching force, but is threatening to veto and suppress those rights for the majority black and Hispanic principals who supervise them. 
right? That's a bad look, right? Particularly when you think about the voice that principals bring to the table. When the city wants to implement a policy or the school district wants to implement a policy, who do they give it to to make it work in a school? They give it to principals. And yet we're the only voice that they are not legally compelled to listen to. Mm-hmm. And you get some really screwed up policies when you don't have to listen to the people who implement those policies, especially when those people are majority black and Hispanic and are more likely to bring a perspective to the table that identifies with the majority black and Hispanic students we serve. And yet you don't want to legally compel the district to listen to these people by giving them collective bargaining rights. And so, uh, again, but to get back to your question, um, CPS, uh, they brought their uh, management out their director of HR, which they call the talent department. And they brought in folks from the fund for education. They got their allies from the university of Chicago, reaching out to the lawmakers, planting seeds of distrust and misinformation. Uh, they've got allies at UIC. They use a lot of their university allies for whatever reason, uh, to plant seeds of distrust. One of the things that the Chicago fund for education did, for example, is they contacted principals about our bill. And they included misinformation about our bill in the language that they used to contact and saying that we're concerned about this bill that would define principles as non-managerial. Once again, that's not what our bill does. We're already non-managerial according to a 1989 court case. Mm-hmm. So they're already throwing it. I mean, we want to, we would like to interview you. And so the principals come in and they interview the principal about their position on this bill. And the principals always come back to me and tell me what happened. And then no matter what the principal says, they say, well, we'd like to support you. Even if they're for the bill, they tell the principal, we'd like to support you. Would you be interested in speaking with a legislator if we could arrange it? And the principal will say, oh, yeah, sure. But then they only follow up <laughs> with the people who were against it. Even though the majority of the people they spoke to were for it, they only follow up with the folks who they can get to speak against it. Yeah. Um, and when we looked at the witness slips, there were more than 300 principals who signed witness slips for it and three principals who signed witness slips against it. And they made sure those three principals got to speak with lawmakers and ignored the other 300. Wow. Uh, and that's the Chicago Fund for Education. Yeah. So you know a bit about them. Yeah. Welcome you know, I see the Chicago Fund for Education as, you know, they do a lot of programming for principals. You know, it's like, what, what, their, what is their purpose? You know, principals, like, when the principals saw them testifying against the bill that they wanted, they was like, because the fund, I've already had a good relationship. The fund does these programs for them. And what the way I had to break it down to the principals, like, you know that line in The Godfather? You know, keep your friends close. Godfather Part 2, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And I look at the principal, I say, well, to the fund for education, you're the enemy. And those programs are a way of keeping you close. You have to understand that you are, they see you as either the enemy or a potential enemy. And those programs that they do for you are a way of keeping you close. And you have to understand that and be careful about whatever the hell you say around those people. You know, cause I've heard from folks in central office that they actually keep a list in the fund of principles they want to get removed. Well, that goes back to, uh, yeah, that, that remember the, uh, what is it? Do not hire list. 
a ban for life list. I wrote so many articles about that. No, the games that's played uh, in public education in the city of Chicago. I don't know. We'll close with this. I don't know if an elected school board will end these games. Well, it's not. Uh, uh, tomorrow. Oh, no, today. They, they, for all I know, uh, Troy, while we've been having this conversation, the bill has passed. Uh, been uh, obviously preoccupied with today's show. Uh, but uh, in closing, do you have any thoughts about elected school board, if it does pass, what the future means for Chicago public schools? Well, you know, I tell you this all the time, man. We have an elected city council. And I don't know if I would want our city council running our school system. <laughs> um, it's the nature of the election that matters more than the fact that there'll be an election. I don't know if there's enough in this bill to ensure that the school is supposed to be an elected representative school board. And so you have to put things in it that increase the likelihood that it will be representative. Some of those things would be reserving certain slots for parents of children in neighborhood schools, for example, prohibiting other types of folks um, from running for, or from even being qualified uh, if they're not going to represent the people that the school district serves. Um, uh, what's the type of election? Um, proportional, not proportional. When ranked choice voting. Ranked choice uh, what they have in New York, yeah. Right, ranked choice voting would also increase the like nothing's a guarantee, but there's all these things you could put in the bill that would increase the likelihood that the representatives will be representative yeah. of the people that they're supposed to be going to bat for. And none of that is in this bill. The, the closest thing this bill has to it is that it at least has a large board, right? And having a large board, if they have different districts, increases the likelihood that someone who is representative could get elected because it reduces the expense of an election because you uh, narrowed it down to a specific geographic location and there are 20 of them and not 10. So that is the closest thing I've seen in this bill to something that uh, makes the board or the election process designed to increase the likelihood that someone who will be representative could be elected. Well, I'll just point out as we uh, leave that probably some of the same forces that are uh, vehemently opposed to an elected school board are the same forces that are opposed to collective bargaining rights for principals, just pointing that out. Uh, and that the opposition is essentially rooted in the same concept, which is the less power employees have, the less power voters have, the more power they have. This is sort of my general view of the world, Troy. You can call me jaded, uh, et cetera, and so forth, but that's kind of how I see it, just the most general terms. Go ahead. That's a scientific fact, brother. <laughs> power... Power in this in this con in this construct is you know, some game. You get power for yourself, you'll take it away from others. Yeah. And they certainly don't want regular people getting power because it takes away some of their influence. So I don't know if that's jaded, man. That's just someone who's who's looking at reality, I think. Yeah, I've been looking at reality in the city of Chicago since 1981, which is a long time to be looking at reality. And certain things repeat year after year. Before I let you go, what is the number of that bill? I want to read your bill, your collective bargaining. Do you know the number of the bill by any chance? HB 3496, House Bill 3496. Gotcha. 
House Bill 3496. All right, Troy LaRavier, uh, it's a pleasure as always talking to you. And I always say, God, I'm too much time between Troy LaRavier interviews. And the last one, I can't remember what we talked about. We t- I, I know we closed with Adam. Prince. It was around Adam Toledo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good God, yeah. And you and you filmed it. Uh, and, yeah. uh, I didn't uh, film this one this time. I didn't have a bandwidth. Oh, all right. Well, uh, next time. Yes, so, sir. Uh, anyway, that's a great Troy LaRabier from the Chicago Principals Association. I also want to thank Monroe Anderson, uh, who was on the show a little earlier. It was some great risk with Monroe talking about the Tribune and Trump, et cetera, and so forth. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Troy LaRabier will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him D-Nice. Give yourself D-nice. a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. 